Hello and welcome to the Parson Brown Podcast, where we talk theology, nerdy goodness, and even some pop culture here and there. I ask that you join us on this journey, have a good time, and thanks for listening. Well, good evening and welcome to our final in our Summer Theology Roundtable series. Tonight we have Zach Hunt, and I'm going to read this little bio of his. Zach has spent the last decade writing about the interplay of faith and politics in the public sphere on his eponymous blog, Substack, and Patheos, as well as contributing articles to multiple publications. He's also made appearances in Rolling Stone, the Boston Globe, Huffington Post, and various other media outlets. Zach's will work culminated in the launch of his first book, Unraptured, in 2019, which Publishers Weekly called a piquant debut. Using stories drawn from his own faith deconstruction, Unraptured reimagined the biblical theology and application of Revelation to see it not as mysterious code to be unraveled, but a source of hope and liberation, particularly for the least of these among us. His newest book, God Breathe, What It Really Means for the Bible to Be Inspired, was recently released. He has both those books here tonight, so be sure to stop by and purchase one. Before his public writing career began, Zach graduated from Trevecca Nazarene University with an undergraduate double major in religion and history. He also holds a graduate degree in theology as well as an additional graduate degree in Christian history from Yale Divinity School. Combined with more than 20 years spent preaching and working in various forms of ministry, Zach is perfectly positioned to continue his work reimagining the church's relationship with the Bible and its role in the lives of believers. When not writing about the intersection of faith and politics, Zach can be found traveling and trying out new restaurants with his wife, playing with their two little girls, and sneaking out onto his back porch trying to smoke the perfect rack of ribs on his beloved smoker. <laughs> So, thank you everybody for coming out. Thank you for those watching live and recorded. And just a few housekeeping things. Since this is the last in our Summer Theology series, our next series uh, for adults on Wednesday night begins next week. It's Finding God in the Music. If you didn't do this last year or you were afraid of it, ask Joyce about it. Joyce and Hope uh, did some homework one night. They did one of the best exegetical projects on U2's um, Until the End of the World, and they nailed the interpretation that the band had, So, and they had no prior knowledge of what it was. So trust me, you'll enjoy it. We have a lot of fun doing that, and um, a lot of the intersection between pop culture and uh, theology as well. So definitely welcome you back. But I'm going to turn it over to Zach. I'm going to ask him to kind of give, give us an introduction to why you wrote God Breathe, and the kind of your purpose of the book may not want to give all the secrets away yet. Um, there'll be plenty of questions. And definitely, those of you in the audience, um, Pastor Nick is ready with the microphone. So if you, if you do have a question throughout tonight, just raise your hand. Pastor Nick will come over and hand you the mic, and you can ask uh, questions. So, Zach? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to hang out with you guys and, and to talk about the book and and God and uh, theology. 
like I said, God Breathe is, is my second book. Um, both of them, are, they're both about the Bible. Um, they're both very different, um, but I, I think they're both unified in the sense that they're both about me admitting how wrong I was um, growing up about so many things. And by growing up, I mean, even now, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I was convinced that uh, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt um, and and eventually discovered that my faith was more of my uh, own creation than it was something that was necessarily grounded in either historical Christianity um, or reality. And and so God Breathe is, is really me working out my faith in real time. Um, it's, it's me looking back at my own past, um, how I understood Scripture, um, how I how that understanding of Scripture has changed and evolved. Um, and then it's also, you know, for me, there's two goals I think that I have with the book. Um, the first one is I, I want to offer folks permission and, and freedom um, to ask questions, the sort of questions and 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 to hold certain doubts and um, even disagreements that that I didn't feel free to necessarily ask or to challenge or to question when I was growing up as a kid. And, and not that like I grew up in some sort of like hardcore fundamentalist sort of thing. I went to church at uh, used to be called College Hill, now Trebekah Community Church, just down the road, um, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, I still attend church there, and you know, it, it didn't come from that so much as me um, having a sense of Christianity that was defined by right answers. And so, for me, I needed to find all those right answers, and church didn't have enough for them, so you know, I had to go out other places. And um, one of those places was a guy named Jack Van Impey. Uh, if you ever seen Jack Van Impey, and he was really into end times theology, and that's where um, led me into end times theology, and and that's where Unrapture came from. But it all centered in this this idea that Christianity was all about having the right ideas, and Christianity was all about. Um, me getting myself to heaven. And to do that, I had to have those those right ideas. And the Bible was fundamental to that. And so for me, the Bible was, um, it was just, it was a, a fact sheet. You know, it was, it was an answer book. It was, uh, it was just a list of things that I needed to affirm or believe so that I could get to heaven. And the idea that I could wrestle with anything that I found there instead of just accepting it or accepting what I was taught that it meant um, was was really a foreign idea to me. And so God Breathe comes out of me trying to offer folks that are where I was the sort of freedom and permission that I feel like maybe I didn't always have. And then for me personally, but I hope also for folks who read it, you know, the ultimate goal of God Breathe is to offer a a vision of the Bible, um, but also Christianity in general that is worth believing in, right? I, I think the problem that we face a lot today in the church and and we see, you know, numbers are declining and people are fleeing and things like that, and we look for answers and we come up with strategies and programs and things like that. And I think ultimately, you know, what we miss is that, you know, we're not really preaching a lot of good news, or if we are, that's not what people are hearing. And I think, you know, the challenge, at least from my perspective, you know, is that we need to prevent, present a faith that's worth believing in, a Jesus that's worth following, a Bible that's worth reading. And so, like, one of the guys that I draw from is an early church father um, named Origen. He wrote in the early, or, yeah, early fourth century. 
And he, he talks about this explicitly, so I'm just completely plagiarizing him um, as I do most of my professors from Trevecca. And, you know, he says that, you know, when we go into Scripture that we should look in Scripture, and I'm completely butchering his eloquence here, but he said we should search in Scripture for a meaning worthy of the God, you know, that we're searching for, that we should find in Scripture um, a meaning worth or a faith worth believing in. And so, like, that's really what what God Breathe is about. It. The first half of the book is is trying to unpack the history of the Bible um, to tell the story of the story because I think a lot of us grow up, especially those of us who grew up in church, that you know we're we're in church the first Sunday after you were born or you've been in Sunday school your whole life. You know we assume that we know the Bible, um, and the truth is, you know, there's so much more out there that. Um, that we need to know, that we need to learn. Um, and so the first half of the book is about um, learning that story. And then the second half is is moving towards learning to tell a better story, um, at least better than the one that I used to tell. And so that's my hope for the book is that people, you know, find freedom and hope and that, you know, ultimately find the faith that's worth believing in and, and that the Bible, you know, ceases to be a weapon of death that we wield against our enemies and instead becomes you know, what it was supposed to be, a source of hope and a book of life. Yeah, yeah that's good. And, and I think you all will see a theme over the last few months of each of these roundtables we've had. We started with Tolkien, and we talked a lot about the myth and how when we tell stories like Tolkien did that are beautiful, that are about friendship, that even when there's hardship, that there's drawing people into a story. And, and that's what Zach's talking about here, is, is drawing in. And even, even with Dr. Gaines a couple of weeks ago, you know, the, the ethical thing was in uh, moral improvisation and how we don't just, it's not just about the right answers. It not, it's not just about, as Dr. Gaines said, it's not just about what would Jesus do. It's, it's much wider than that. And finding ways to engage, especially in the public sphere now, in ways that show people who God is rather than um, who God is not, which is a lot of ways I think Christians tend to do. Um, and speaking of those stories and giving people permission to question, you, you tell a story of your time at Treveca in the, in the early part of the book, and it, it ap- happens to be that professor's birthday today. Really? It is. Oh, man. So, I did not know that. <laughs> so you tell a story— um, about your first day in an Old Testament class, it's uh, Dr. Tim Green um, from Treveca. I'd like you to kind of tell us about that story and how that impacted um, what happened in your life going forward. I, I need to wish him a happy birthday. Um, I actually have a copy of the book that I need to give him because um, I, I didn't tell him about that story. And uh, he took off to like New Zealand or something right when it came out. Um, yeah, so I... I went to Trevecca. Um, I was a religion major, and I was a bit of a nerd. Um, I I was bound and determined to to become a youth pastor, and that's what I felt God called me to be. That's what I ended up being. Um, but more more than that, I I really wanted to take religion classes. Uh, I remember distinctly uh, in high school, um, my 
a trigonometry teacher, like first day of classes, like junior, senior year, had us write down um, or fill out some sort of Q&A sheet for, I still don't understand why. And it was, you know, why are you taking this class? And I said, because it's required by the state. You know, like I'm going to be a youth pastor. This class has no bearing. And I like to point out that I was right about that. Trigonometry <laughs> and calculus have no relevance whatsoever in my life. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to stop blowing into that. Um, but yeah, so I... I was so excited to take all these religion classes because in my mind, um, religion classes were going to be like AP Sunday school. And like, I love Sunday school um, because I loved getting answers right because right answers gave me candy and like, I'm a sucker for candy. And so I thought, you know, if I go there, Tim's going to just like throw out candy, you know, if you get right answers in, in Bible classes and he didn't, um, he did other things that, that, that were not as exciting, but deeply challenging. And, and so one of those things was on the very first day of class. Uh, it was at McClurkin. If you've ever been on the campus of Trevecca, McClurkin is the religion building. It was built in the, I think, the 40s uh, by students. It's been renovated, and it looks nice and clean um, and, and modern inside. When I was at Trevecca, it was not. Um, it was very 1940s, very creaky, very, uh, you know, kind of Indiana Jones, if you've ever seen the old, you know, uh, lecture halls that he used to teach in. Um, it was wonderful. There was a lot more character, I think, to the building. So this class was held up uh, in the top floor of McClurkin, um, up a narrow flight of stairs in a creaky hallway. And we we sat down for class that, that first day, and I broke out my Dell Latitude laptop that lasted maybe six months before it broke and um, was sitting down and, and getting ready to take notes. And, and Tim was standing up there getting ready to do his lecture. And I think he opened the class with prayer. Um, and then he he looked at us and he held up his Bible and you know I'd heard Tim preach a bunch of times and I'm like all right we're gonna get a cool you know Tim Green sermon and Tim held held up his Bible and he turned around and threw it as hard as he could against the chalkboard and you could hear a pin drop I mean you, I, the the sound of that Bible hitting the chalkboard and the sound of it smashing on the ground is just it's so visceral that I can still hear it, you know, 20 years later, you know, in my imagination is, is, as if I was still there, it was so shocking. You know, I, I don't think any of us were prepared for it. And he looks at us and he just says, stop worshiping this book. And that one line just fundamentally reshaped me and is reshaping me to this day because I had been, and I didn't realize it. Because for me, like worshiping a book, worshiping anything meant like what, what you do on Sunday mornings. And I didn't sing songs to the Bible, you know. I didn't, um, you know, have communion with the Bible. You know, like we we're not doing, not baptizing the Bible. I'm not making any burnt offerings to the Bible. But I was using it like an idol. Because, I mean, that's ultimately what idolatry is, is really about. I mean, we talk about idolatry, you know, is, is, anything, is replacing God with something else. Um, and that's absolutely true. And I think that we do that, or at least we equate Scripture with God. And so when we talk about the Bible being the Word of God, that Word becomes a, a capital W. And so the Bible ends up becoming kind of a fourth member of the Trinity. But that's not really exactly what he was talking about. I mean, he, he definitely was. But I think ultimately with idolatry, the reason, you know, you see folks in the Hebrew Bible all throughout the Old Testament 
um, succumbing to idolatry. The reason you see all these different gods in antiquity throughout the world is because the people wanted these gods to do something for them. And so it was a transactional relationship. I worship you, you give me rain. I worship you, you give me kids. I worship you, you give me success. And I think that the Bible is something, or I think that we use the Bible in that same sort of way. Um, sometimes in the context of prosperity gospel, we absolutely use it as, okay, if I do this, this, and this, you know, I, I prayer, if you remember the prayer of Jabez, you know, you say, you say this prayer and God's going to bless me and make me successful. But we also just reduce this wonderful, complex, scary, beautiful story down to just this list of things to believe so that I can get to heaven. And so instead of like finding our place in the story of the people of God, we turn the Bible into an idol that if we treat it exactly the way that we think it needs to be treated or worship or revere it the way that we think that it needs to be worshiped and revered, then we get to go to heaven. And so it's this disordered relationship that we have with the Bible that that's the the basis of this book. And, and I think what Tim was trying to do when he scared the living daylights out of us on that that first day of uh, Old Testament. Well, one of the things that um, I appreciate that you did in the book was you kind of pointed out ways in which Christian culture has had unhealthy views of the Bible or unhealthy relationships with the Bible, even harmful relationships with the Bible in, in ways that can be destructive, not only to our relationship with God, but also with each other. And um, growing up in the Bible Belt, growing up in the South, you know, there's a very prevalent fundamentalist presence within the Southeast. And uh, we as Wesleyans, as Nazarenes, are kind of in the middle of that, or in the midst of that. Um, can you talk a little bit about, kind of as you did in the book, just touch on kind of the the harmful things or the harmful messages or, or ways in which the fundamentalist movement has um, caused some damage in, in those ways that we we need to just be aware of and be mindful of. Absolutely. So one of the things I kind of alluded to this before um, that I try to do is 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 retell the story of, of how we got to where we are, because I think all of us in every really aspect of life see the world, see the faith, see politics, see history through. The, myo the myopic lens of living memory. And so what I mean by that is the way thing we, we kind of, whether we articulate this way or not, we sort of assume that the way things are now is the way that they've always been, right? Or, or the way that, you know, they've been for at least two or three generations of anyone who's still alive. That's the way that it's always been. And so when you look at something like the doctrine of inerrancy, um, you know, you'll you hear people, oh, this is this is just Christianity. You know, this is this is the faith. And it's not. You know, inerrancy is a modern doctrine that was essentially invented um in reaction to the rise of Darwinism, to the Enlightenment. Um, the first time it was ever confessed um as a uh, official creed or not creed, but a confession of a church was in 1910 in Atlantic City um, by the Presbyterian Church. And and what they're trying to do is is carve out a space that says, you know, we have the truth, right? Um, and that's something obviously Christianity has done all the time, but it became this adversarial relationship. 
you know, with our neighbors. Because I think the great irony of fundamentalism to me and is that of all the five of all the fundamentals and and in this first profession of fundamentalism there was five and i would pretend to know what all five of them are but i can't remember off the top of my head but what i do know is or what i do remember is the one that was missing the one that was there and that you know is in the book is inerrancy but the one that's always missing from fundamentalism is love you never ever hear that professed as a fundamental of the faith now we talk about it in church but when you get into like fundamentalist circles the the dividing lines are about do you believe you know in the divinity of Jesus do you believe in the virgin birth do you believe in this particular theory of the atonement or you know dispensationalism or, or whatever but we forget that that love is the thing that should be driving us and so it, it's easy to like I think just have warm fuzzy feelings and thoughts about love but our core confession as Christians is that we believe in a God who at God's most core being is this loving community. I mean, that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is, right? I mean, we the doctrine of Trinity, I think, gets ignored a lot because it seems like this really abstract, pointless, you know, math problem that none of us can ever solve. But really what it's confessing is that who God is fundamentally is love. And not love in isolation, but love in community. And if we are created in the image of God, then we have been created to be in loving community. I mean, that's what we do when you come to the table. You know, we are remembering the body. We are bringing it back together in this love feast, right? And I think the problem with fundamentalism, you know, is twofold. One, the the most ironic part of fundamentalism, and particularly the doctrine of inerrancy, is that it's not just that it's ahistorical or that it's not, you know, factually correct or theologically right or anything like that, but that it's ultimately blasphemous because what's happening with fundamentalism is that, and and it's not just fundamentalists, I think we all do this, when we say things like the Bible is clear or I'm just quoting the Bible or or Jesus just said, or or if we just take this verse and we just quote it and say, well, this isn't me, this is just the Bible, what we're doing is, is pretending as if we're not part of that equation, right? And we're taking ourselves out of the interpretive process, which is impossible because, I mean, every translation of the Bible is an interpretation because the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek with a bit of Aramaic 2,000 years ago in a, com- in a community and context radically different from our own. And so there's work that has to be done. And when we pretend as if we're just this empty vessel communicating, you know, God's unfiltered vision, what we're really doing is sanctifying our interpretation as the mouth of God. And so what we're doing or what fundamentalists are doing in this sort of reductionist approach to Scripture is divinizing or sanctifying themselves as the mouthpiece of God, their own interpretation as the mouthpiece of God. And so it's really an, an act of blasphemy because it's not just worshiping the Bible, it's worshiping ourselves and our own understanding. But then there's the other element of it too where there's there's no foundation of love. It's a foundation of facts. It's a foundation of knowledge. It's a foundation of self-centeredness that makes it easy to turn everyone who disagrees not just into an enemy, but an enemy of God, but really an enemy of me because I put myself in place of God because this is my interpretation. And so I think the most, the most problematic thing about fundamentalism um, isn't, you know, theological in the sense of, you know, we disagree about the atonement or something like that. It's not, you know, translations. It's not the minutia of the faith. It's the most fundamental thing that, that we are called to love. And that's what I try to get to in God Breathe is that, you know, 
there was this time when the, the uh, teachers of the law came to Jesus, the fundamentalist of his day, and they wanted to know what is the most fundamental piece of the law? What is the one thing that we need to know and we need to follow so that we can get to heaven? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we all know that part, but there's that second little part at the end that I think a lot of us gloss over because you know we are no longer under law, we're under grace. But Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two, all, these two commands. And what he is saying is that all of our understanding of Scripture has to be grounded in love, but not just grounded in love. Love has to be both the foundation and the finish line. And so like I love what Augustine says. Augustine's writing in the fifth, uh, fourth and fifth century after Origen, and he just plagiarizes Jesus because that's what all great theologians do. We plagiarize Jesus. And, and he says, no matter how great your exegesis, no matter how great your interpretation, your grammatical skills, your, your Greek or whatever— if it doesn't lead you to love neighbor, then you're wrong. It doesn't matter how clear the Bible verse seems to be. It doesn't matter how convinced you are of your interpretation. If you are not using it to love your neighbor, then you're wrong. And to me, that's the great challenge of fundamentalism is it's so easy to get intoxicated by the simplicity of the Bible is clear. And when we do that, it also becomes super easy to turn everyone into an enemy. Um, and that's not to say there aren't enemies. You know, we, we have enemies, but Jesus told us to love them. And so uh, to me, that's the great challenge of the faith is, is not trying to figure out theological puzzles, but figuring out how to love real people in real life. One point that you made in the book that I really appreciated and resonated with was if, if the two greatest commandments from Christ are to love God and love neighbor, then any and whenever we're interpreting or using the Bible— relating to scripture if it ever takes us away from that then we we know we're wrong because that's that that has to be our our center that has to be our grounding so and so much easier right to follow a pre-approved checklist that if i if i mark off one through ten then i get my golden ticket stamped and we move on to heaven that that's a much more confined rational easy focused way to think about the Word of God rather than the messiness that is the relational element of of engaging with, with people in Christ's love. And when we look at Jesus's teachings throughout the Scripture, we see that he engaged in the messy time and time and time again, and this is our call to love. But I also think uh, one of the things I loved is the, just the title in and of itself, but um, when we start to think about our move towards holiness and what that looks like in our lives to to gain wisdom and righteousness and to grow in grace, uh, it really is the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, right, and informing the things that we're doing. So when we're reading the Word, we're reading the Word in the power of the Spirit that we're we're trusting that God is informing. That's why when when I read a scripture or you read a scripture and you may read the same scripture every day for seven days, new things will start to come, new things will start to rise. When we start to think about the Ruach, the breath of God that comes into our very being, that that is the core of who we are, and the Holy Spirit walking with us in, in journey, when we start to think about that in terms of relationship to the Bible, what are your thoughts on why it, why is it so hard for our some of our fundamentalist brothers and sisters to let go of the concept of of absolute uh, knowing, right, and to trust that God is big enough to in love to help to us to grow? How do we start to get there as a denomination, as a people of God, as we start to think about the Holy Spirit working, and perhaps 
why is the Holy Spirit such a scary concept for so many people? So that's a little bit loaded, but there you go. I I think it could be summed up in one word, and that's hell, right? I mean, you cannot overstate the influence that the doctrine of hell has on the church writ large, but particularly on fundamentalism. Because if your entire being is driven by avoiding hell, then nothing else matters, right? Because I always, and I'm sure you guys have heard this as well, like growing up, like that the uh, eternity outweighs, you know, the present so much so that it doesn't matter what happens here as long as you get into heaven, right? And so any sufferings or trials and things like that, and there's, you know, there can be beauty in that, you know, because you lay down your life and and sacrifice and give it to others, and that's and that's wonderful. But the problem is if if all if faith is reduced to me avoiding hell, then it doesn't matter how I treat my neighbor. Discipleship doesn't matter because if all that matters is I believe the right thing, right? Sola fide, um, I'm saved by faith alone. If all that matters is that I believe the right things, then it doesn't matter how I treat my neighbor. And it's easy to just ignore that because, or it's easy to ignore that call because hell is so scary, right? And so when we are are so focused on ourselves and our eternal, you know, destiny or or getting out of this, you know, lake of fire, then it warps our worldview. I think it, it warps how we see ourselves and how we see others, um, because you know we are ourselves are are wretched and awful and worthless and unworthy of love and. And we are just these sort of pawns in this eternal game. And all we want to do is get to the other end of the chessboard and, you know, and that sort of thing. But then people become either, you know, enemies or co-conspirators, right? They either become people that we need to damn and exclude and marginalize because they corrupt, you know, the purity of, of the body, um, or they're just targets that we need to proselytize to, right? I mean, they're not even like people, like we want to get them saved, we want to get them converted, but they're really just, you know, part of this mathematical equation, um, you know? And so I, I, I think that is the fundamental, again, fundamentalist, but fundamental problem, you know, that we have is that our understanding of the gospel often begins in a place of fear instead of love, and that is not a gospel that I see Jesus preach ever. Now, does Jesus, you know, make stern warnings and and cost? absolutely, but that is not the beginning place because, you know, like you were talking about with this ruach, um, you know, the the book is called God Breathe because in part, you know, I want to dismantle and and invert some of the assumptions that I grew up with about what that idea means. So God Breathe, you know, I'm sure most of familiar comes from Second Timothy two three. Second Timothy 3, 16, you know, all scripture is God-breathed and useful, blah, blah. And growing up, for me, that was a mystical uh, literary mechanism. You know, this is this mystery of, of how um, God inspired the Bible. You know, and I remember Dan Boone telling me in class one time, you know, that, uh, you know, you have to be careful going too far down that path because it not just— you know, you're going to end up in heresy eventually, or you're going to end up in real, real weird places if you try to, 
you know, pin down exactly the, or the exact mechanisms of inspiration. But I think there's a really interesting thing going on there because Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he uses this really unique word, and we're going to get really nerdy here for a second, uh, theonoustos, my pronunciation of words, both in Greek and English is terrible. Um, But he uses this word, and it's the only time he uses it in the New Testament. And he just kind of uses it in passing with, with Timothy as if he kind of assumes that Timothy knows what he's saying. Um, but we don't, right? You know, we we don't, you know, we didn't grow up in first century, uh, you know, Israel. You know, we don't speak ancient Greek. Uh, and even our, you know, experts in Greek today, you know, are still like, well, you know, th- this is some ideas, but but the literal translation is God breathed. Oh, at Trebekah, um, you know, when we took biblical exegesis class, they teach you to look at context, right? And we all know about context in the in the sense of, you know, the immediate verses um, or maybe the immediate chapters. And unfortunately, you know, Paul doesn't really help us out there uh, because, again, he doesn't use the word and he doesn't really bring up that imagery anywhere else in his letters to Timothy, and it's not anywhere else in the New Testament. But it is in the Old Testament, and it's it's in that rock in that those very first couple chapters of Genesis because it's the one the one thing in scripture that is also described as being God breathed is us because Genesis 2 2 and 3 God takes the dirt from the ground and breathes the ruach of God and creates us and so you and I are God breathed just as scripture is now if that's true and that seems to me is is what the bible is saying then that flips that whole idea of God-breathedness upside down. Because one, it means God-breathedness doesn't require perfection because you and I aren't perfect. And that's okay because God still trusts us to tell the story of the people of God, even when we get it wrong and we get it wrong a lot. And that's one of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't try to gloss over any of that. I think if we were trying to write the Bible today, it would be a lot neater you know, and a lot cleaner than it is. But the Bible that we have, the story that we have, I think is much more honest than the one that we would probably write because it's a story of of rapists and murderers and adulterers and thieves and liars. There's an entire book of the Bible called Judges, and it begins with, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then the rest of the Bi- or the rest of that book is the people of God putting words into the mouth of God and doing terrible things in the name of God. And then it ends with, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if that's not the story of the people of God, I don't know what is. And the really crazy thing is, quite possibly, the oldest written piece of scripture is in Judges, in, is Judges 5. And it's the story of Deborah stabbing, or um, I'm, I'm getting fused here, but it's, it's the story of taking down the patriarchy, essentially. But, but it's the story of Judges. It's this like kind of foundational story for the people of God that it's almost like a warning that we have to be really careful that that we're not perfect people. And even when we, we are inspired to write, we see in a mirror dimly and we are jars of clay that are fragile. And to me, when Paul uses this word, God breathed, he's picking up on these same sorts of cautions or warnings that he gives Timothy in the early church to not get too confident, to not get too arrogant. Because, you know, as easy as it is to dismiss Paul a lot of times as being arrogant and cocky, I mean, if you really get into to the, his letters. I mean, this is a guy who's constantly, I, I do the things that I don't want to do, right? I'm a wretch. I mean, he's constantly being um, self-effacing and self warm because he gets it, I think. I mean, he gets that this story is, is complex and messy and a lot of times embarrassing because we're not perfect. 
we're God-breathed. And that's okay because truth doesn't require perfection, right? I mean, I mean, my parents aren't perfect, but they still communicated truth to me. You know, none of us on the stage or in this audience are perfect, and yet we're still able to communicate truth from the pulpit or with our kids and with our families. And if that's true, then that opens up a whole other possibilities or a whole new world of possibilities for reading Scripture, um, reading Scripture in a way that, that's not new or foreign, but is deeply biblical because the entire story of the Hebrew Bible is a story of a people called Israel. And before that people was called Israel, they were, there was a guy named Israel. And before he was Israel, he was Jacob. And the reason that his name became Israel is because he wrestled with God. That is an exciting and scary potential, but an exciting possibility that for me breathes new life into scripture and into the faith. And I think that's one reason why it's important for the church to understand that the Bible can be true even if it's not factually correct yes. in, in places. And I think being able to understand that truth lies in the story and the relationship experience of God and his people rather than lying in based on historical, scientific facts that are correct and all in the right order and place. And so I think being able to untangle ourselves from what it means, you know, for the Bible to be true and kind of reimagining the power of, of, of truth that comes from Scripture is much more powerful if we understand it from that way than if we base the truth of the Bible in facts and historic, you know, and, and I, I know you touch on that, and and I just think that's really important to. Oh, absolutely! I, you know, I think exactly what you say. I mean, we, we're trying to force, you know, the square Bible into the round peg of our our needs, right? Because we need the Bible to be this fact book. Because we need to have the right facts so we go to heaven and not hell. But that's not what the Bible is is trying to do. Because I mean, think about how the, the Old Testament came about. You know, the people who are, who are writing these stories before they're written down, they're just stories, right? I mean, they're stories that people tell when you get up and when you lie down and you write them above your doorpost and you tell them to your kids and then out in the field. And they're stories that are true because the people of God experienced that truth in their own lives, right? Nobody who was walking around during the time of Nehemiah, right, um, had had archaeological evidence to prove the exodus, but they had experienced God's liberation and God's hope and God's grace in their life. And I think that's how we need to understand Scripture and understand the truth, because the Bible is com is very comfortable because people, you know, in antiquity were very, com very comfortable with embracing myth, which we've, you know, we've taken as, as, as this kind of scary enemy of God, enemy of the Bible, enemy of the faith, because a lot of us, I know, at least for me, we're growing up, we're taught growing up to think of myth and truth as being polar opposites, right? So if something is a myth, then it can't be true, but it's just not true. You know, I think Revelation in particular picks up on this, right? Because Revelation is not a historical account, it's an apocryphal um, prophecy. It's, it's, it's a myth that's telling a deeper truth. You know, and that's the beauty of myth is that myth is able to communicate truth in a way that history isn't because history is bound by people in time and space. But myth transcends space and time to communicate truth in ways that history can. So you look at someone like, like Icarus, right? 
there was no Icarus. No one ever put on wings and, and, and flew too close to the sun and crashed to earth. But the story is still true because the truth is in the lessons about hubris and arrogance and pride. And I mean, this the same thing with, with like the book of Revelation. Um, just to use, you know, that as a particular example is that the truth isn't in the, you know, a literal bowl of wrath being pulled, poured out, but or dragon or, you know, any of these other, you know, really vivid imageries, images. The truth is in the corruption of the empire and the empire crumbling, right? I mean, it's the same thing with Jonah and the whale. You know, we can't prove, you know, that story, but it's still true. And it's because it's not the facts of that story that the Bible is really interested in because the people who wrote that had no way of proving that. What they were interested in was the truth that that story was conveying. And so go back to Origen. This is a guy that I fall in love with because he opened up a whole new world of interpretation for me, is that he even goes so far is to say that there are, that the Holy Spirit allows certain stumbling blocks, things that couldn't possibly be true. And that could be something like, you know, something historical or scientific, but it could also be something that couldn't be true or good because it's contrary to the gospel. So something like, slaves obey your masters for it is right in the Lord. No. And it's okay to say no because we're we're not to stay on that literal literal sense. Origin says there's two senses of scripture. There's the literal sense, the literal words on the page, but then there's the deeper truth that God is trying to draw us to, what he called the spiritual sense. And so Origin would say that there are certain stumbling blocks, like slaves obey your masters, or these other, you know, contradictions or problems or however you want to describe them that we come into scripture, that we can that if we stay on the literal, we get stuck on. And so we find ourselves having to do all these mental gymnastics to sort of reconcile and smooth things out, but we don't have to do those because we can go deeper down. We can embrace those challenges as an opportunity that have been given by the Holy Spirit, by God, to go deeper and to have and to experience a deeper truth so that so that a problem or problematic passage like slaves obey your masters or the genocide that we read in the Old Testament, we don't have to look at that and say, well, genocide's okay and slavery's okay because it's in the Bible. We can say in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes because that's what the people of God, just like everyone else has done, but the people of God have done as long as there have been a people of God. And that's put words and deeds into the mouth and life of God that do not belong to God. But we can go deeper if we can get beyond the literal and say, there's still value even in those terrible passages because they remind us that even the people of God, these great heroes of the faith, were flawed. They were imperfect. Sometimes they even put words in the mouth of God that didn't belong there, and we know they didn't belong there because they're not loving. But there's still good news there because if God can use someone like that who says terrible things like that, or who was even a terrorist like Paul, then maybe there's a place for me in the story of God too. I, I'm sorry. I have a question. <laughs> I'm over here. I'm just like, y'all are so like, into where did it. That voice y'all from? are so into it. And I, I know. I'm just the, the voice out in the crowd. But um, I actually, it's funny. I had a, a question earlier and you went so deep. I don't even want to ask I it anymore. I will just ramble on. No, it's like, okay. No, um, I want to say something and then I want to ask you a question to follow up on that. So first of all, uh, what you're saying is really, really, really good. And you touched on something about Paul, and I think a lot of people tend to interpret, can can sometimes interpret him as prideful and even says, kind of talks about that a little bit. And I think part of that is because with the confidence he says to do as I do and to trust in what he's saying about about the Lord. And, um, and so anyway, when I listen to you talk, um, it's interesting because I can tell everything that you're talking about 
is coming from a place where you're reading the word with the Holy Spirit. And this could only have come from you reading it and getting that understanding from the Holy Spirit. And the reason I wanted to mention that is because when we actually read the Bible and we have that inspiration that's like full of God's love, it really allows us to speak about about it with confidence. And yet we also have to remember to talk about ourselves and to, to remind people that we are not perfect because it's not coming from a place of pride in our own selves. It's coming from a place of pride in, our, in the Lord, like loving, you know, belief in loving the Lord. So I, I just, I hear that and it's very, very fascinating listening to you talk. But more so to me, actually, because I feel like it's coming from a genuine place of a true connection with God, which is really, really powerful. But from that, and this is where this question, why why I wanted to ask this question, is I think that I, I talk to a lot of people, and this is something I, I could only experience on my own, was getting close to the Lord on my own through my prayer life. But I talk to people on a regular basis who— follow lots of teachers. And so you probably have people that follow you and they're like, wow, Zach Hunt, that guy, he knows what he's talking about. I I think he has all the answers. And they'll probably ask you questions and, you know, sometimes not always go back to God to to find the answers or, you know, seek the word with the spirit. So so I wanted to ask you for everybody here um, as well as myself, if you could share a little bit about maybe how your prayer life, like how you feel like your prayer life has developed and what is the important to you in your daily prayer life or weekly prayer life in order to to be able to have this kind of connection with God that you cuz because this is not just you and and I know you will not feel prideful about that every single person can have these kinds of illuminations that you can have because it's given to us by God for everyone and so um anyway I just wanted to maybe ask you about that about your personal prayer life and just um and and I say that as someone who wants to pray every day and I still have like weak flesh and I don't but um I say you know so you don't have to answer perfectly not that you would but just as far as you know your personal conviction of how that should look and um any you know advice you might have for people that's a great question I I think for me prayer worship Scripture, a reading of Scripture, all of it needs to be grounded in three words that I think they're not banned in church, but I don't remember the last time that I remember anyone talking about them openly. I don't know. I think that we are so focused on having the truth and the right answers and knowledge and all these things that are good that we don't leave any space for humility. And, and the oldest hymn that we have in the church comes from Philippians 2. Christ, even though being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be the, the scripture that Paul's talking about or alluding to. It says like snatched at, right? And he's alluding to the Garden of Eden and, and Adam and Eve snatching at the tree of knowledge. But instead, you know, Christ empties himself and takes on the form of a slave, this radical humility. And what I hear Paul saying there is that, I mean, he quite literally says, you know, take on the same form um, that, that Christ Jesus had. And I think that in our, to go back to what we're talking about, our, our focus on avoiding hell and getting to heaven, coupled with the idea that that is based on right ideas, prevents us from, from even getting the foundation of our faith right. And that foundation should be love and humility. And if those become our foundation, then it radically changes everything else. But those things, I think, have to be intentional, right? Like, you have to be able to come to Scripture, and instead of saying, I'm going to—and obviously, you know, we don't 
consciously do this, but I'm going to go figure out the truth and I'm going to become smarter and I'm going to understand God. We have to, I think for me at least, and this is what's changed for me personally, whether it's, you know, scripture reading or standing up here or writing books or whatever, praying or singing worship is, is trying to keep that reminder in front of me the entire time of, of, I don't know. And being willing to admit that sometimes like, I don't know, you know, and it seems so, I think trite and simple, but it's so important because again, it, it's this act of humility that we're embodying with Christ and it gives us the freedom to, or not us the freedom, but it gives the spirit the freedom to open up our eyes and our minds to new ways of seeing the world, which is a weird sort of concept that, that we would have to give God permission, but to like kind of piggyback on C.S. Lewis, you know, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, he says that Aslan seems like the sort of God, well, he didn't say God, but seems like the sort of person that wants to be asked. And that's the sort of God that I think, you know, I see in scripture. God breathed, my book ends with um, a story of Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones. And it's another place where the Ruach of God appears. And it is a really weird vision. And not just because it's a Valley of Dry Bones, it's really weird because God tells Elijah to command God what to do. He says, prophesy to the wind, O mortal. But it's not the wind, it's the Ruach. And so what God is saying is, is, is tell me what to do. And that's weird, right? That's a lot weirder than bones getting flesh and coming up and down. But what that requires is a, a radical humility or a position of radical humility that confesses not just that I don't know, but that I need, right? That I need to let the Spirit challenging, challenging me in ways that are crazy and scary and weird that sometimes look like visions of a sheet dropping down from heaven with food or with, with animals that God, I thought God told me not to eat, but then God is saying, kill and eat. That's a weird radical thing to say that God is doing this brand new thing. And yet that's the whole book of acts. I mean, that's the story of Peter. And so like, I think to answer your question it, it's for me, it's, it's been, been two things that have, have reshaped my prayer life, my faith. The first is that being comfortable with not knowing. I will say, we'll say three things that makes it more Trinitarian and more godly. I don't know. Really letting the spirit guide me. And that can be dangerous because a lot of times I can become the spirit in my own mind. And so that's where this, this guardrail of love, I think is, is radical. just incredibly important because it, if I feel that I am being led by God to do something that's not loving, then that can't be God. Then the other part of that, the third part, is that I have to remember that, you know, I think a lot of times we look at the Bible and, and we look at our lives and the life of the church as existing after Revelation, right? Here's the end of the Bible, and now it's our turn. But we don't live after Revelation. We live between Jude and Revelation, right? The early church is Jude, Revelation is the end, and the rest is in between. So we are still part of that story. And so for me, prayer has become, and this is going to sound really corny and cliche, but the more than just this sort of quiet time, but this particular way of life, because if prayer is about God opening up my eyes and, and my understanding, then that's something that is not going to just happen in, you know, in a prayer closet or in my bed or, you know, my bedroom, but that's something that's going to be happening every day in a, in a particular way of life. And so for me, 
you know, it, the biggest shift, paradigm shift that I've had in my understanding of my relationship with God and with my brothers and sisters in the faith is is incarnation. Is this this calling that this this calling uh, to follow Jesus isn't something that happens, uh, you know, up here. It's something that happens out there, right? And so that my prayers aren't just something that I, I, I see or I speak or, or I say inside my head, but it is a particular way of life that's grounded in humility and love. And that's, that is, is really comes across, I think, as reductionist and sounds really simple. But when you really let the Spirit take you places that the Spirit wants to take you, and you and you really challenge yourself to love people that you don't really want to love, and you, you come to grips with the fact that you don't really know everything, that's very humbling, but it opens up a, a whole new world that can also be really exciting. I don't know if that answers the question. And I would I would just say on in my journey, two key things that the Holy Spirit is bigger than just a convicting spirit, yes. right? That we grew up, I think I'm 47, so in that generational era where when the Holy Spirit came, it was to move someone to the altar. It was a certain yes, time in the service, good. right? But that the Spirit moves the way that the Spirit wants to move. We can't control the Spirit. And that's part of the mystery and wonder that I think so much is being lost in today's in the last two decades of 24-hour news cycles, social media, constant knowledge. I, I must know all things, be all things, right? I own these things. The mystery and wonder of God is part of the journey, right? It is that God is bigger than who we are. He's our creator. He is the Father God. He's all things to all people, right? But then also that God is big enough to handle our questions, right? That, I mean, when we look through the Psalms, even in the lament and the crying out and the gnashing, and the, God is big enough to handle our questions. And that's something that that the generation prior to me from when I was growing up, that wasn't something that was allowed. It was not okay to question, right, that, yeah. that God was God. And, and I think in opening those two ideas from a place of love in that journey, those made a huge difference for me in my personal journey. Just thoughts to share. I'd welcome no, your thoughts. That, that's really good. If I'm piggyback, because I will definitely forget. That's the reason that I think I'm still Nazarene and still Wesleyan is this idea of prevenient grace, that God is out there at work in the world in ways that I can't even begin to imagine. That is a beautiful and terrifying thing. Because if you, we we talked earlier about heaven and hell, and you know I think we have this idea of you know, this reductionist faith, and and if that's the way we're going to approach it, I mean Jesus lays out exactly what's going to happen on Judgment Day in Matthew twenty five, and it's not a list of did you affirm the Virgin Birth, did you believe in the Trinity, what was your atonement theory? It's I was hungry, did you feed me? I was thirsty. But the really scary and nerve wracking thing is there's no confession of faith there. The people who Jesus says come in and receive your reward or like, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry? They, they never came down to an altar. They never accepted Jesus into our hearts. That's revolutionary, right? That's good. That's prevenient grace. That's God at work in ways that are outside of our control. And I think ultimately, I mean, that's one of the problems we alluded to before is the problem, one of the big problems with fundamentalism, but really just Christian, it, just humanity is our desire for control. I mean, it's Philippians 2. I mean, it's the very first sin. It's the original sin is trying to control our own lives, trying to control God, trying to control the world. And I love the beauty of 
of of John Wesley's idea of well, maybe it's not his idea, but he, he's the one we give credit to. Is, is this idea of prevenient grace that God is bigger than I can imagine, and that God is at work in ways that I can't even fathom? That gives me hope because not just is it cool and interesting and God's doing neat things in the world, but it means that if God is out doing things with people that I don't think God should be involved with because they're bad or ugly or weird or gross or whatever, maybe God could be at work in someone like me too. And I'll go off and start preaching. We'll have an altar call here in a minute, but I, I love what you're saying. I think prevenient grace is is such an incredibly important and beautiful doctrine. And I think it's I think it's a Tim Green quote too. Oh, I'm totally no, on me from Tim. I, by that. I may be wrong, but someone in that religious part with that the idea of God. What are you up to, and how can I be a part of it this day? Right. So I don't know what it is, God. I don't know what you're up to in the world right now, but let me be used of you, right, uh, and serve you in such a way that I just want to be a part of your journey. So I cut you off. No, Go ahead. No, you're good. And, and I think, may our prayer be that we want to know Christ more than we want to know answers. Yes. And we want to experience God and His presence and His peace and His strength and His joy more than we want to know the answers and experience success in ministry and in life. And um, personally, in our my family, we're going through a very difficult and scary season. And um, it's a season where I can't go to the Bible and get answers for my questions. So I'm going to have to trust in God that I love who loves me and who I know loves my family for the peace and the strength that I need, even when I may never have those answers to my questions. And one of the things that I do every day is I write a a, a short prayer and I text it, and our, our whole church gets a text every morning. And today's today's prayer was, Lord, when we we don't have the answers to the hard why questions, still give us peace and strength, because we should want to know His peace and strength even when we may not find those answers. And it goes back to the being willing to know and admit that we don't know sometimes. And that's okay. Absolutely. I mean, and it comes to this, again, this, this God-breathed ruachness is that, you know, the Bible at the end of the day is a book, right? It is not God incarnated in paper and ink. It is God-breathed but so are you and I, which means that when we are in these sorts of difficult seasons and moments that the God is right here, or two or more gather in my name, but even just one of us is still the God-breathed presence in the world, that is a radical idea of hope and life and grace that I think that we lose when the Bible becomes an answer book. We're actually getting close to the end here, or at the end, but a couple of things I wanted to say. You know, as, as a pastor of discipleship, I think one of the most important things that, that we try to get across, other than those important commandments to, to love God and, and love our neighbor, is to give each of us permission to ask questions and to say we don't know. 
Um, it's, it's the huge shift we talk about between a propositional faith and a relational faith. Um, when, we, when we reduce faith to propositions, we, we put God in a little box to control God and make ourselves God. Um, when we allow God to breathe, as Zach talked about here, it's not just Scripture that's God-breathed, it's, it's us who are God-breathed as well. And it's the move of God in this world shaping us that we need to be open to. And being open to that means we don't have all the answers, and we don't have to have all the answers. If we, if we had all the answers, I think life would be incredibly boring, because part of the fun in life at least for a lot of us, is learning and is being shaped and, and even unlearning. Um, I, I'd say everybody up on this stage, especially, you know, Zach tells his, his story in his books. Um, you'll hear us talk about it. We, we're all very different than we were. I mean, even yesterday, probably in many ways. But most of us have gone through changes throughout time because we ask questions, because we were willing to say, God, teach me something new. God, show me something new. Take me into this so that I can be better at being who you want me to be and so that I can show people who you are. And it's much harder to show people a God of love when we're reducing it to propositions and to just trying to get the right thinking rather than being rightly related, as our friend Darren Brown says. Um, So... What I want us all to take away is don't don't be afraid to question. Remember that you are God breathed. Um, definitely pick up the book if you haven't. Trust me, you're, you're multiple copies yeah. if you could. And, and you're, um, yeah, a box. I've got boxes. I can get you a bulk. <laughs> you're you're gonna like it, um, and it's it's gonna challenge you at times. But I can tell you, when you get to that last chapter, and and the bones in in that weird story. Um, you come to that truth of being God-breathed and what that means. And um, Dr. Gaines talked about it three weeks ago. He almost gave the the secret away, but Zach talked about it. We are God-breathed. What Zach does in this book is to take the idea of Scripture's inspiration out of the hands of it being a propositional truth to it being something that so seeps into who we are shapes us and breathes into us that it makes a difference that there is transformation because of it and there's some scary things that happen because of that there's some wonderful things that happen because of that but that's what i would encourage all of us um i did realize i forgot to introduce everybody up here besides zach um pastor randy on the end is our communications pastor um Pastor Dwayne Harris, he is our lead pastor here, and I'm I'm Pastor Brandon. I am the discipleship pastor here. Um, if you grab one of our things, if you're a visitor, you'll find you'll see lots of staff here. Just know that most of us here are not paid. Um, we do this because we love this church, we love God, and we feel called. And as I described, I was recently ordained, so as I described to that panel, not doing what we do up here, not telling you this story, not living in this story would be miserable for many of us because that's why we're, we're compelled to do it. And remember, we all are part of that story still. 
Um, you can go back to when Nick Polk was here. We talked about this, the story of Sam and Frodo even. They were talking about how they were still part of a story that was thousands of years old. That's the same truth for us. We're still in that same story. When we read Scripture, we are still part of that same story. It's still ongoing. It hasn't ended. And part of that is as we live into that, we are able to change our world in ways that that we can't imagine. And it's ways that, that will look very different than the way the world looks and works often. So um, I'm going to ask Pastor Randy to close us in prayer tonight. But uh, like I said, Zach's got books back there to purchase. And thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. Thank you for having me. Father God, we thank you for your love and grace and mercy in our lives. We thank you that you've called us to love you and to love people. And we pray tonight that as we go from this place, that you would walk with us, that your spirit would guide us. Thank you for Zach, for the ways that you're using him, for his words and for his guidance. We pray that you continue to use him mightily in his ministry. And as we continue to seek and serve you in all that we do, may your presence go before us and guide us. And may we know that you are God who who is connected, who cares deeply about your children, who wants to walk through this journey and do whatever it is that we face uh, daily, that you are there to walk that path with us. So we thank you, God. We love you. We give you praise for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Parson Brown Podcast. I hope you enjoy what you've heard, and if you did, please subscribe. Thanks for joining us on this journey.